Muslims in China are not like we have in Europe. We are immigrants here in Europe. Uh, you know, I was like we newcomers. Chinese Muslims have been in China for 1,300 years. They are part of Chinese society. And they're not only in Xinjiang. You know, many mosques in the Arab and Islamic world disappeared long time ago, or they were changed so much that they, they, you cannot consider it original, but the mosques, some of the mosques in China are still the original. Okay. They were renovated. They were developed, but they are still original. This is world heritage. This is very important, but it also shows you the tolerance and harmony of Muslims because these were preserved. The Muslims in China may have managed to preserve their faith and their religion and their practice for centuries. And they continue to do that today. All the talk in the West about oppression of Muslims, the Uyghurs, is, is just pure lies. Nobody has presented any evidence on that. But all evidence actually points to the opposite, that China managed within a fantastic way to deal with that without destroying the culture of the Uyghurs and Muslims in China. And the United States and the West failed miserably everywhere in the world. And actually, they led to increase of terrorism, like their so-called war on terrorism, actually supported Islamic terrorism all over the planet. Actually, what China managed to do in Xinjiang and in China generally uh, against this problem of terrorism is a, a classroom example of how to deal with this problem of a real terrorist threat. There was, ter- as you described, there was a real threat of terrorism that today. China is doing the right thing. And every week, if you have noticed, China is winning new friends. The Belt and Road is getting new members. Now we have 152 nations have joined the Belt and Road. The nations who are in, not in the Belt and Road are a minority now. They are around 40. So that's reality. Reality is talks better than the propaganda. Is there religious freedom in China? Are Muslim people oppressed in China? And what about the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang? Is Xinjiang like an open-air prison? These are all the questions that people outside of China had because of the bombardment reports from the Western mainstream media and the Western politicians. If you have been following my content in the past two years, you probably have already watched some of the content. Because as a journalist in China, I have traveled to Xinjiang multiple times in the past few years, witness the dramatic changes, either is the economic status or people's livelihood. And I encourage you to take a look at those content on my channel, subscribe to my channel, because I've interviewed people from all walks of life in Xinjiang. I've interviewed Uyghur imam, Queen imam, Uyghur designer, Uyghur musicians, or just ordinary citizens, villagers, different ethnic groups living in Xinjiang. And all of them have debunked the Western's accusations about China. All of them found that the West cares so much about them is so hilarious. I also wrote articles explaining the realities in Xinjiang, what really happened in Xinjiang, including the terrorism issue, the economic development, and also the cultures in Xinjiang. So feel free to take a look at my article, my vlogs, my videos. And you know what? 
these days is a very important holiday, very important festival for Muslim people around the world. On June the 29th is the Corban Festival or Eid Al Adha Festival. People in Xinjiang, all the Muslims in China, all the Muslims around the world are celebrating this very important festival for them. So at this very important occasion today, I invited a friend of mine who is a Muslim from Iraq who recently visited China. We will discuss Islam in China, the counterterrorism method in China. And also how to deal with the terrorism the whole world is facing. His name is Hossein Eskri. He's the vice president from the Belton Road Institute in Sweden and the West Asia coordinator for the Shitter Institute. So Hossein, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, uh, Jingjing. I'm very, very happy to be with you again. Uh, I was always very pleased to meet you in person in Beijing when I recently visited China and, uh, of course, uh, wish all the Muslims and everyone in the world a, a pleasant Eid al-Adha. It's a very important, it's the most important Muslim uh, festivity uh, where people celebrate actually the, the pilgrimage to Mecca in Saudi Arabia today, uh, where mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands, I think this year is 1.5 million people from all over the world, all nations, colors, and you know ethnicities, they meet in that little spot in Mecca for mm-hmm. atonement for forgiveness, for harmony, and mm-hmm. peaceful coexistence. A beautiful phenomena, uh, which every Muslim must do or have, if they can, in their lifetime. And I know that there are many, many Muslims from China uh, in Mecca right now participating in this wonderful uh, uh, event. Yes, since you mentioned it, actually, I, I shared it on my Twitter as well, because Chinese Muslims in different provinces uh, were went to Mecca, organized by Islamic Association in different provinces. So all of this are uh, coming from the different provinces. So all of them are doing Hajj in Saudi Arabia. I think that news, those photos themselves can already debunk a lot of lies. Those who said Chinese Muslims don't have their freedom when they're actually <laughs> with the help from the government. They went to Saudi Arabia, went to Mecca, which is the most important thing, one of the most important things in their life. And, yeah, uh, I really appreciate the work you are doing because, I mean, not everybody in the world can travel uh, so much uh, inside China to meet all these Muslims. And one of the things people don't really understand is that the Chinese community is not only in Xinjiang. You know, the, the first Muslims, actually, they they are from southern China in the Canton, and, you know, Guangzhou, Chuanzhou, uh, Hanzhou, all these uh, things already in the seventh century. Muslims settled there and they became integrated into the Chinese society. You can find Muslims and Muslim communities all over China, everywhere in China, east, west, south, north, and they are part of the Chinese society, which it's not like here in Europe, like Muslims are just recently immigrated to Europe. They are considered as a outsiders. But in China, Muslims are part of Chinese society. This is very important for people to understand. Mm-hmm. You mentioned something very important. I hope you can share with us more about this, because recently you visited China. You spent yeah. over a month traveling to different provinces in China, and you actually went to different mosques in Xi'an, in different provinces, had a wonderful time. I've seen some videos and images that you shared. So the first question is, uh, what's your thought on Islam in China? And uh, what's your experience in China in the past month? 
yeah, I think this was the most amazing thing I have done uh, in many, many years. Uh, and it's very important that people travel to China. It's very important that people spend time to China, not just go one week to one city or one province. I traveled in six different provinces. I was invited by universities in these six provinces, but I also managed to spend enough time to go to visit, see people, marketplaces, go to museums, go to archaeological sites, but also to Muslim communities in Beijing, in Guangzhou, in Xi'an, especially, but very, very fascinating experience. And But my impression about China itself, I mean, we know very, very little or nothing about China, even for myself. I was shocked that China, which I saw in this trip, and I traveled by high-speed train, which is an amazing experience. I thought I knew something about China. I didn't know so much. Until I, I went to China, I realized I don't know so much about China. And it's very, very important that we keep that in mind. We know very little about Chinese history, Chinese community, Chinese traditions, about Chinese political system, economic system, and all these things. Okay, we know about China's rise in the last 40 years. But I think it's very, very important that uh, we get a, a clear idea on uh, what is going on in China. I mean, what I saw in China, it's very, very important, is that China is the most modern society in the world right now okay uh, from a technical standpoint urbanization modernization is the most advanced uh, right now in terms of infrastructure really really <laughs> well yeah, i know, appreciate what you said but even as a chinese i'm like really yeah, yeah i mean there are, there are many things i was amazed and people say well we do this every day it's like taking the high-speed train you know 350 kilometers an hour and it comes on time <laughs> this, this is uh, okay there china there are many places where you still have poverty, you still have a bit of backwardness, but, you know, the, in the cities, in the major cities, it's very, very organized, very modern. Uh, Shenzhen, of course, I went to Shenzhen, it's like this amazing place. Uh, but not only it's modern, it's very green. I mean, people think that China, you know, is like because there's so much uh, desert and, uh, you know, arid areas, but you go south from uh, Beijing, anywhere south from Beijing, to the south, southwest, and it's so green. It's as green and sometimes greener than what we have in Europe. It's it's, it's fantastic to see that. Uh, then we have the, um, uh, it's a, a very safe and peaceful uh, place. I mean, you can feel safe any time of the day. I mean, even, you know, many women have, from Europe have traveled there. They say, I can walk in the street any time of the day, in the middle of the, I won't be worried being attacked, being robbed or anything. And I could experience that. But also I experienced that the people, the Chinese people are very happy people. I mean, I, you go to the marketplaces, you go to the city centers and you see people, uh, you know, there's music and they're dancing, you know, or doing other things like the social activities just spontaneously. It's not organized by anybody. It's just people go there and dance in the park. They are very, very optimistic, but they're also worried about what is going on in the world because they know that their prosperity is dependent on a peaceful and secure world. And this is very important, uh, a very, very important uh, issue. And also the friendliness of the people. I mean, the Chinese people are so friendly, just amazing. And that's re a reflection of the Chinese culture. Now, I just want to briefly say something about what I understand. I'm not a China expert. I keep saying that. We have many people in Europe and the U.S. They say they are China experts. They don't know anything about China. I'm not a China expert. But I, I managed to visit 12, 13 museums and archaeological sites in China. And it's really, really fascinating. The depth and breadth of the Chinese civilization. It's important to understand that it's continuous, has continued. Many civilizations came and gone, they're gone. 
in West Asia, in Europe, in Egypt, everywhere. These are gone. But China, you have continuity, but continuity with evolution. Renew, it renews itself. Two, Chinese culture, it takes good impressions from others. It can absorb and assimilate the good things from other cultures throughout history. It has managed to do that. Like we have Buddhism in China. We have uh, Islam is in China. Uh, so China takes the best of other cultures. It's not shy about taking things from others and learning from them. But also China gives. China is sharing. So it's inclusive. It takes and it's sharing. It gives its own gifts of technological, uh, scientific or cultural progress to others. I mean, one of the fascinating musical instruments in China, the pipa, is uh, is from West Asia. The Chinese don't hide that fact. You know, it's like uh, this this is something which China took in, but it developed it and made it part of its culture. It's one of the most beautiful musical instruments you have. So, but also China has given humanity so much. I talked a lot in my lectures about the, how important that the Muslims or Arabs learn making paper from China, paper on an uh, industrial scale. This was a revolution because we had enormous activity, intellectual activity in Baghdad, for example, in the 8th century and 9th century, but we didn't have enough material to put it on and spread it. It was like internet today, more important than internet today. So paper may help Many cultures, because the Muslims were translating, the Arabs were translating things from Greek, uh, Indian language, even from China, and then spreading it all over the world again. And that helped also the Europeans to learn again about Greek uh, heritage, you know, Plato. So paper making was like one of the most beautiful gifts China gave to humanity. It's still today, it's very, very important uh, for us. Without paper, we wouldn't be where we are today. So this is one of these are some of the impressions I got about China. And this brings me to the question of Muslims in China, because Muslims in China are not like we have in Europe. We are immigrants here in Europe. Uh, you know, I was like we, newcomers. Chinese Muslims have been in China for 1,300 years. They are part of Chinese society. And they are not only in Xinjiang. Uh, the first Muslims, first Muslim communities were developed in southern China on the maritime Silk Road. And it was through trade. It was never through invasion. And the Chinese emperors, the Chinese governors of the, of the you know, Canton, Guangzhou, Guangdong province, you have Chuanzhou, Hangzhou, these were Muslim centers where the Muslim traders came there and they were welcome. And they could uh, have trade, but also communicate with the, even with emperors about Islam and Islamic. Uh, there's a famous dialogue between a Chinese emperor and a Muslim uh, scholar about Prophet Muhammad. Uh, so Muslims were assimilated in the Chinese society. But they kept their traditions. This is what's special about China. I said it's continuous culture. It evolves. It takes new impressions, but it's faithful to its original character. And Muslims remain also, uh, they could manage to preserve their religion, their faith all these centuries. And mm -hmm. also the mosques we have in uh, like the mosque in Guangzhou, the Weisheng mosque, the Xi'an mosque. Uh, other mosques, even in Beijing, I visited, went to Friday prayers with my fellow Chinese Muslims. It was a very beautiful thing to sit there and pray with the Chinese Muslims. And um, I could even understand some of the things the priest, the preacher, Imam, was saying because he cited from the Quran in Arabic. It's very beautiful. But the thing is, it is we have uh, this integration of Muslims in, in Chinese society is very, very unique phenomenon too. And these mosques, as I said, 
these are not only the oldest in China, these are some of the oldest in the world. The mosque in, in, in Guangzhou, the Guaisheng mosque, is built in the eighth in the eighth century. You know, many mosques in the Arab and Islamic world disappeared a long time ago, or they were changed so much that they they you cannot consider it original. But the mosque, some of the mosques in China are still the original. Okay, they were renovated, they were developed, but they are still original. This is world heritage, it's very important. But it also shows you the tolerance and harmony of Muslims because these were preserved. The Muslims in China may managed to preserve their faith and their religion and their practice for centuries, and they continue to do that today. Very well said. And uh, what you said, your observation about experience is really interesting because sometimes when I've been here for too long, I probably don't, it's, things are too normal for me that I don't know when someone else came here, they found, wow, it's... it's Thanks yeah, for I mean, sharing. I was expecting <laughs> Chinese people were saying, why are you so shocked? I said, well, this is really shocking for me. You know, it's, it's shocking in a positive sense. And Chinese, well, this is normal. You know, I mean, the Chinese people, they love the, to eat food at the Muslim quarter because they love the, the food made in these. I can see I went to the Muslim yeah. quarter in Beijing. You have to be positively shocked by China. You have to be amazed because we know very little about China. I really... I, I, urge everyone to travel to China uh, and see China for yourself. It's completely different than what you hear. Even if you are positively inclined to China, like I am, I'm a friend of China, but even my view of China was not really so clear until I traveled there. You mentioned the mosque you visited. So I want to share quickly on the screen of the the Twitter that you posted. Hello, this is uh, Hussein Askari. I'm uh, talking to you from uh, Xi'an's Grand Mosque, uh, one of the most ancient mosques in uh, China. Uh, been centuries ago, and has been preserved uh, all these years. And uh, Muslims have actually practiced their rituals uh, here uh, for centuries, and they continue until today. Many people were so happy to see somebody visiting that place and showing the, the Muslim, uh, Muslims, uh, you know, praying there. But also, it's an amazing place. This is like, it's not only a mosque, it's a museum. It has been preserved. I mean, it, the Xi'an Mosque was built originally in 730-something. Uh, That's a long time ago. It was then uh, expanded uh, during the Ming Dynasty in the 14th century. And uh, what you see there is like the characteristics of the architecture is like this it's Chinese and mm-hmm. some people they think that it's sinicized the uh, Islam no it's assimilated Islam into the Chinese so the architecture is Chinese but then it has Muslim characteristics uh, one yeah. of the most amazing things I saw is that I took many pictures of that I can share it with you uh, like all over the mosque in the prayer hall it's the only place, to my knowledge, where the whole Quran, the script of the Quran, which is a huge book, is carved in wood and all over the mosque. 
It's very, very beautiful. And the question of the Chinese definitely were fascinated by Arabic calligraphy because calligraphy is important also in Chinese culture because the importance of expressing things, the importance of the word, of the intellectual content of the words and metaphors, which is very, very important. So this is a very special place. And in the, in a, in the world's context, from the standpoint of architecture, I mean, it's a beautiful place from the standpoint of history, from the standpoint of many, many things, but also religion. Because you, you walk into that place and it's huge. It's right in the center of Xi'an, but it's very, very big. And it has been preserved. And you see all these, um, stone uh, carvings where emperors have, you know, uh, made sure that this place is preserved. Uh, and one of the important emperors is the Ming emperor, uh, Hong Wu, I think is my person. He wrote a hundred word poem. The Baizizan poem in praise of Prophet Muhammad. And he reflects in that poem a deep understanding of Islam. So so the Chinese way of looking at things is not like this is a stranger. They say, I can assimilate that teachings, the moral, uh, whatever teachings into my own thought process. You know, I don't need to be a Muslim, but I can assimilate that into my own thinking. And that's what is very important with Chinese culture. And today, China is also assimilating things from outside the world, but it's still remaining faithful to its own character. And I think President Xi Jinping is very, very clear on this question because the, the modernization in China has gone so fast. It's like a stampede. You know, it's like these uh, Spanish bull uh, stampedes where people run in the street and the bulls are running you know, with that enormously fast modernization of China, how are you going to preserve your culture and your civilization? Mm-hmm. Continuity as a, and President Xi Jinping is very, very clear on that. And I think the Chinese people are very clear on that, too, because never in history a society so large has developed and modernized so quickly. And I think yeah. this question of assimilation, China takes in technological, other, but it keeps it Chinese. And this is not taking over somebody else, but it's trying to take the best from other cultures, which is very fascinating. All civilizations, great civilizations, they take positive things from other civilizations, but they keep their own character. Exactly like what you said. I think most Chinese have the same thought. Like here, uh, religiously, we have multiple religions in China, Islam, Christianity, um Buddhism, um, all the religions you know, all exist in China. And uh, when they came, they came to China long time ago, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. So they became part of Chinese culture. And we have different ethnic groups. And it's very interesting, even though we have 56 different ethnic groups and uh, they have different languages. And you know what we all consider, I've, I've talked to people from different ethnic groups, no matter which ethnic group they're from, which languages they speak, they all identify themselves as Chinese. So, and even though they speak Mandarin Chinese, Mandarin Chinese is the national language, but that doesn't mean I cannot be, let's say, Tibetan or Uyghur or Hui. That's all me. So, I mean, yeah. and uh, in China, you take a look at Chinese history. During Yuan Dynasty, it was the Mongols that ruled in China. During Jing Dynasty, it's the Manchurians, Manchurians ruling China. But 
nothing, no one is a foreign power. They all then became the Chinese civilization. All of us uh, identify ourselves as China. So this yeah, is a question, very important question of unity. This I saw, it, especially in the museums. I went to in Xi'an to the uh, to the uh, terracotta warriors uh, site. It's very fascinating. But what I learned there, I always thought, what is so special about this place? About this, uh, of course, the artistic. But, but then I realized that the, there's a notion of the unity of the Chinese people. Yeah. That's where, and that's why Chinese people and their leadership are so concerned about the question of separatism. To split the Chinese society, this is the biggest threat to Chinese civilization and to the modern society right now. And I can understand why China is very strong on this question to stop and not allow this idea of separatism to seep into the Chinese society. Yeah. So since you mentioned a separatism issue, I think we need to address the issue in Xinjiang because the West cares so much about Xinjiang. But, uh, you know, um, there were some issues in, in Xinjiang. That's why they were taking stronger security uh, measures in the whole region. And uh, how to make their story short, because in the, there were period, there were a period, of, I would say, from actually terrorist, terrorist activities took place occasionally from time to time in different parts of Xinjiang since the 90s until the 2010, 2016, around that time, 2016, 2017. So there were thousands of terrorist attacks in the past few decades in different corners of Xinjiang. But during their period, especially in the 20, 10th that period it got stronger because i've talked to many local people like uyghur people you know traditional uyghur culture if you take a take a look at their traditional clothes it's very colorful they bring all the brightest color together as bring all the jewelries in their clothes and uh their traditional culture is they love dancing and singing it's part of their daily life after the farm work or after work they would do the dance it's part of the traditional culture it's not organized it's it's not uh, a performance it's just like i enjoy what i do that's my mm-hmm. life so music uh colorful clothes drinking all this it's they're Uyghur people's traditional culture. But there are a period of years when they were suddenly told, you cannot do any of that. I uh, have a Uyghur musician. Uh, music is part of his life. He's a rock musician. And he was told they cannot sing and uh, they cannot cry at funerals. They cannot listen to music. And women suddenly not start to, cannot wear uh, other clothes than Burka, and they cannot talk to men that are not Muslims. So, I mean, they were forced to accept some cultures that are not part of their culture. And it, it was forced on them. Many of them were just, were not happy with that. But during those times, but it was not forced, forced on them by the Chinese government. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so this you, is you, the real issues I, I, uh, many people told me. And actually, there are many, uh, CGTM have done some documentaries uh, showing yeah. certain footage of certain cases of the extreme violence. And yeah. I went to the museum in Wurumqi, where they showcase all this, uh, the footage and photo of terrorist attacks 
that took place in in Xinjiang. But those images are just too violent, too bloody to be shown public online.、Mm-hmm. Or、yeah. so you have to be there to see what they di- display only exhibited in that museum. So many. It's not just it's not a re, just a racial issue. Many Uyghur people were targeted because、uh, Western audiences tend to equal Uyghurs as Muslims, but no, not all Uyghurs are Muslims, and not Muslim not all Muslims are Uyghurs in China. Like Muslim people exist in there were ten、yeah. different ethnic groups are Muslims, and、yeah. Uyghurs many of them they will follow some traditions like they only eat halal food. Uh, but and they they will celebrate the Corbin festival, but they're not religious.、No. They part of it became part of their life tradition.、Uh, I mean daily traditions. So I mean that's the reality. Not all Uyghurs are Muslims,、yeah. but those people, those Uyghurs who are not Muslims, will be targeted by the extremists.、Mm-hmm. How can you not be a Muslim? So there were certain years that happened, and also、uh, there are some Uyghur Muslims. Who are imams that are totally against this radicalized ideology, and they were being murdered by the extremists. There were many cases, many photos of Uyghur imams being beheaded in the public in front of the Idikar Mosque in Kashgar. I bring this up just to show to let people know it was really, really bad in Xinjiang during certain years because the radicalized ideology spread into Xinjiang and forcing people. To accept it, and that created the racial issues because there were no racial issues before. Han people, Uyghur people, Kazakh people living in Xinjiang—they all coexisted, coexisted with each other for centuries since Han Dynasty, since Tang Dynasty in Xinjiang. But suddenly, during those years, it became an issue.、Uh, so there were so people were certain people were forcing those idea in, onto those people. That's why. There were counterterrorism measures taken in Xinjiang,、uh, and also those who were who were influenced by the extreme ideology. They some of them were taken to the vocational training center.、Uh, what they learned in those vocational training center first is de-radicalize, and then they can learn. Uh, Mandarin, which will give them more opportunities to、uh, different work and even go to universities. And second, they can learn a skill, vocational skill. Like some of the, I interviewed two women from Kashgar who used to be influenced by this radicalized ideology. They went to the vocational training center, and they said after, and they learned the computer skills from the vocational training center. They learned a lot of. The skills, and after graduated,、uh, now they are working as the head of the women affairs in their village, in in their county. So they have a much better job, and they dress very fresh fashion as well. Because oh, okay, I can I can do this. I can do a lot of things. So these are the dramatic changes. So these are the counterterrorism issue. Counterterrorism measures taken in Xinjiang. That's the reality in Xinjiang. That Western mainstream media never. Never shown people to the to the outside of China.、Mm-hmm. So I want to ask your opinion.、Uh, you know the counterterrorism measures taken in China. What's your thought? And、yeah. uh, do you think that's a big concern to you as a Muslim?、Uh, no, on the contrary. Actually, what China managed to do in Xinjiang and in China generally、uh, against this problem of terrorism is a, a classroom. 
example of how to deal with this problem of a real terrorist threat. There was, as you described, there was a real threat of terrorism in the country. People were killed. Uh, but then how to deal with it? For, you have, on the one hand, security measures, which are necessary to take, like any country, to preserve through police, security forces, and so on. But then you have to take measures of social economic development. This is what has been missing all over the world in dealing with terrorism. What you describe in terms of extremism, in terms of terrorism, in terms of forcing people to behave and dress in a certain way. This was not only Xinjiang. This was all over the Muslim world, from Morocco all the way to the borders of China. In the 90s, especially because we have this radicalization movement, which has its background in Western support to Islamic terrorist groups as a tool of geopolitics during the Cold War. I can come back to that question because Islamic radicalism, militancy, terrorism is was created by the British Empire and then was adopted by the Americans. And now, until today, the United States and Britain still support certain Islamic terrorist groups. Uh, but that's another, but the question is that, but China managed to do through these social economic development processes is that you go to the root of the problem because radicalism targets people who are frustrated, underdeveloped. And when you develop that region with the positive in the way and you give their life a meaning in a different sense, then the radical forces will have a difficult time dealing with that. But at the same time, you have to put security measures there to to make sure that this does not emerge as a security threat. And all the talk in the West about oppression of Muslims, the Uyghurs, is, is just pure lies. Nobody has presented any evidence on that. But all evidence actually points to the opposite that China managed within a fantastic way to deal with that without destroying the culture of the Uyghurs and Muslims in China. And the United States and the West failed miserably everywhere in the world. And actually they led to increase of terrorism, like their so-called war on terrorism, actually supported Islamic terrorism all over the planet. Until recently, we I mean, now it's, stabilizing a little bit, especially with the United States withdrawing from Afghanistan, which is another disaster. Uh, so the world has to learn from how China managed to deal with this problem, which we call peace through economic development. You can also have security through economic development. And all these things, I mean, I have a souvenir from China, Chinese currency. But if you look at the here in the script, you have both Chinese, English, and Arabic characters, which is the language of the of the Uyghurs. Uh, and China put it on its national currency. It's not, never happened in Europe or the United States to have not the national language, but a, a minority language on your national currency. And all over China, you can see these in the Muslim quarters. There's script Arabic. So I can read the script, but I don't understand the meaning of it, that it's Arabic alphabet. So China, I mean, many Muslim countries sent delegations to Xinjiang and the Organization of Islamic Conference. I mean, we had 30 countries 
who signed a letter saying that they don't see any evidence of what is being alleged about China. Actually, they praised China's way of dealing with uh, this question of terrorism and extremism in China. Uh, uh, and they considered a great model for that. And now China is actually, look, China is not a Muslim country, but look what it managed to do. They brought two Muslim countries who were at war with each other, proxy war, religious, bloody religious war, which we in Iraq paid the price for through this Shia-Sunni divide. China brought this these two antagonistic forces together, and now they're normalizing relations. This is a, a incredible. You know, this is, n- nobody in the West has managed to do- deal with that. And the problem is, the reason why the United States and the West generally, or the British and the Americans, never managed to solve this problem of extremism is because they support these extremist forces. They use them as a tool. And this goes back to actually uh, the late 18th, uh, 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, where you had, you know, the British were con- and French were controlling large parts of West Asia, North Africa, and there were resistance movements against British imperialism. And you had the emergence of, it started with actually religious leaders in these countries because the Ottoman Empire was dissolved, which controlled these areas. And then there, you, we didn't have states, governments in these regions. So re, there are religious leaders in Libya, in Algeria, in Morocco, in Sudan. And they took the fight against the colonialist powers. But then with the 20th century emerging, we had intellectuals organizing patriotic nationalist movements, for example, in Egypt against the British. So the British invented this idea, the British intelligence, and I, we have the whole background that, that you can use backward Islamic teaching and Islamic groups to encounter the nationalist movement, the intellectuals, by saying these are God deniers, especially when after World War II with the Cold War, they supported, like, for example, the Muslim Brotherhood and other extreme Islamic groups, like the Salafist, Wahhabi, so-called, which came into Xinjiang. And, you know, that's what you are describing. These are Salafist groups who say music is not allowed. Women should stay at home. They should not you know, they get education. Everything. This is what that tradition is. But these were tools of geopolitics. So after World War II, during the Cold War, any nation which tried to strive for, to strengthen its economy, to get rid of the control of the British and American, uh, powers were described as God denying communists. We had it in Iraq. We had it with Egypt and Jamal Abdel Nasser. The Muslim Brotherhood tried to assassinate him. And then with the Afghanistan war, you know, with the, the attempt to, uh, you know, destroy the Soviet Union, there is a, a policy. It was designed by a British intelligence asset scholar, Bernard Lewis. You know, it's called the, uh, you know, uh, the arc of crisis. The idea was to set fires all over the border south of the Soviet Union, where you have Muslim communities, to destabilize the Soviet Union and later, of course, China. But the main target was the Soviet Union. 
This was also, it goes back to the great game between the British Empire and the Russian Empire in the 18th and 19th century. So British intelligence have played the Islamic card for a long time, but then the United States got into this game and started also working with the British intelligence, for example, in Afghanistan. And they organized, they first provoked a counterattack from the Russians into Afghanistan. And then they mobilized all these Islamic forces. The United States and the British, they even convinced the government of Egypt to release, you know, dangerous extremists from prison and send them to Afghanistan for training to fight the communists. So when the Afghan war ended and the Soviet Union was dissolved in 1989, all these Islamic forces which were gathered in Afghanistan and in Pakistan, which was the back yard for this operation. Now they were spread all over the world, back into their countries in the in West Asia and North Africa, and some of them went to Europe. And then we had this new phenomena of Islamic terrorism, Al-Qaeda, all these things. I mean, these people, we had a report in 1995 already where we mapped all the terrorist groups in the world, and they had offices in London, including Osama bin Laden's group before it became, became Al-Qaeda. So this was used to destabilize nations who are not following the script of Anglo-American policies. So this, what you know, what you experienced in Xinjiang is part of that global thing. But in China, you solved that problem in a very good way. And now the population in Xinjiang, they can both preserve their religion, their traditions, but participate in the amazing modernization process of China, which will help their future generations to to prosper. Xinjiang has become a key backbone of the Belt and Road Initiative, and it's going to continue to develop. The enormous resources in Xinjiang, which will play a key, important role in the development of China, but also for the population in Xinjiang. So this is a model which everybody in the world needs to learn from, especially in the Muslim countries uh, right now. So... You just showed us the 100 yuan bill of Chinese currency, and you recognize the Uyghur language, which is very similar to Arabic language. And there are also other languages written on the currency. Uh, actually, the other languages written on Chinese currency are, besides Mandarin, which is a national language, the others are Tibetan, Mongolian, and Zhuang, Zhuang ethnic, ethnic language and Uyghur language. So all these languages are all written, five languages written on China's currencies. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think people in the West are familiar with Uyghur and Tibetan and Mongolian because they don't know the Zhuang, whose language is also on the currency because CIA never laid their eyes <laughs> on Zhuang ethnic group. So probably yeah. people don't know. So this mm. is the, this is the thing. Like we put all the minority cultures in everywhere. Our currency. If mm. anyone go to Xinjiang, go to Tibet, you know the eradicating their own minorities language is is a lie because everything you see, every public sign you see, is written at least in two languages. The yeah. the the yeah yeah. No, there, there's uh, the 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 problem we have is. There's, I don't know who said it. He said that a lie can travel around the globe before truth has tied its own shoes. Yeah. So because the, 
the Western media and intelligence services have been way ahead in spreading mm-hmm. lies and investing heavily uh, into that. I mean, the United States Congress uh, uh, voted unanimously in 2021 in the uh, uh, Strategic Competition Act to allocate $300 million each year to encounter Chinese influence, which yeah. means they finance bloggers, media all over the world. That's a huge amount of money. It can buy a lot of pens. It can buy a lot of filmmakers. It can buy a lot of vloggers and all kinds of things. Uh, to And uh, there is need to encounter that because one important thing to remember is that you can't stop people, those people, with showing them facts. Those people have already made their mind that they want to undermine and destroy China. That's their object. They don't care about facts. But there are billions of people around the world who need to see the facts. Now, also, the way you present the facts is also important. Uh, you know, like uh, there should be an investment in the media, uh, uh, not to falsify things, but to show the the main facts. The other important thing, which I told people in my lectures in all these universities in China, because every time I spoke there, the students were so frustrated and angry. And they said China is trying to build things in the world. We are just contributing peacefully to the world. And why they are attacking us so harshly? Why are they lying about us? And I said, look, you know, there is a background. I explained this background to them, this geopolitics, zero sum game, the philosophy behind it, the objectives. But I said, remember one thing, keep doing the right thing. China is doing the right thing. And every week, if you have noticed, China is winning new friends. The Belt and Road is getting new members. Now we have 152 nations have joined the Belt and Road. The nations who are in, not in the Belt and Road are a minority now. They are around 40. So that's reality. Reality is talks better than the propaganda. So China needs to continue doing the right thing by developing its own economy, uh, developing its own culture, uh, the way they see fit, but also continue supporting the Belt and Road and these economic developments around the world. That's what really matters. This is what nations are now seeing. And the world has changed. The world where these journalists in the West and think tanks and the intelligence services is not in reality. They are in a never-never land. They really don't understand the reality. Now, nations in Africa, I mean, even in Europe, but even especially in Africa and Asia and Latin America are now moving to this new paradigm of international relations with China, the BRICS nations, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization are leading. That's what really matters, not all this false propaganda, but of course we have to face the propaganda with facts. And it's better, and that's what my point is, that if we have people from the United States, from Europe, travel to China and find these things for themselves, they would be actually very good messengers to in their own communities and their societies to convey that because, as you say, I mean, it doesn't matter what you say as a Chinese or the Chinese embassy here says. They say, well, this they are pushing the government line. <laughs> so it's very important <laughs> to have this communication with the people uh, from all over the world to go to China, go to Xinjiang, and uh, see the reality there. But actually, not only see that there are no problems there, there is something to learn there, which we can <laughs> actually use in our community. Look at France today. It's burning because of yeah. the, 
the minorities or the immigrant minority Muslims who most of them were born in France, but they're not considered as French citizens by the police, for example. But look at their living conditions. Look at the ghettos in all over Europe where immigrants from Muslim countries and Africa live. That's a time bomb. That's where the problem is. And we have something to learn from China because if, unless you improve the social economic conditions of those minorities, those immigrants, you will have a time bomb ticking. You know what? Many Muslim country leaders, Islam figures visited Xinjiang and they all said, well, it looks fine to me. I don't see any oppressions. I can share with you some of the posts and the videos. Let me see. This is the letter that the head of uh, World Muslim Community Council published last year when he, together with all the, uh, the delegations from Muslim countries, visited Xinjiang, and he published this letter. We congratulate China on the completion of the counterterrorism plan in Xinjiang. Yeah. The level of attention that we found in Xinjiang embodies the determination of the Chinese leadership to serve all components of the people in the region. I mean, see, this is the leader, chairman of the World Muslim Communities Council. He said, we think China's doing a good job counterterrorism in Xinjiang. I know oh. we find there's no evidence of oppressing Uyghur people. So this is the Twitter he pu published he was hanging out with a group of Uyghur children he met in the market. I think, uh, I'm not sure which city, but, uh, well, mm. you can see the happy face and the pleasure mm. is not a performance, is not a forced on them. It's not, they are not forced to smell. <laughs> this is him. This is another tweet published by Muslim mm. communities. Mm. They are congratulating uh, Beijing's effort in combating terrorism and extremism. This is a delegation headed by His Ex Excellency Dr. Ali Al Nuaimi. Sure. Yeah, mm. from the Emirates, I guess. Okay, the and they they visited the Museum of Combating Terrorism and Extremism in Xinjiang. Actually, this the, the English translation mm. is, is wrong, but this museum yeah. is what I mentioned earlier. Uh, it's in Urumqi, in Xinjiang. The Museum right. of Combating Terrorism and Extremism that they explain and showcase all the footage and pictures of the violence, terrorism activities took place in Xinjiang that are too violent to be shown online. So anyone who know actually went there and know the history of understanding what really happened in China, they know there was a serious threat of separating the country. So since the West say, well, there's no religious freedom for Muslim people. Well, this is the video is just from yesterday, the Corbin Festival in Xinjiang. This video, can you see that video? This is yes. in Kashgar in Xinjiang. Yeah. Uh, it's about one minute. Yeah, that's where they get the, that's where they get the sheep for the festival because it's yes. uh, one of the, one of the rituals is to, yeah. Which has an important, uh, it's like you, you don't sacrifice human life for mm -hmm. belief because that's See? what yeah. the origin is. Yeah. This, this footage was just from yesterday in Kashgar because people, local people, Uyghurs are celebrating this religious festival. Mm. <laughs> no, there's, there's no Making doubt good. that I saw the Muslims in Beijing. I mean, the mosque was full on Friday prayer. 
it's good I went there early to find yeah. a place <laughs> because I can uh, share with you later. Uh, yeah. Speaking of that, yeah, this is the mosque in Beijing. Uh, yesterday because there are religious activities. Is that playing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No. Hundreds of Muslim went to the this mosque. China's home to over 20 million Muslims. The majority of Uyghurs and Hui, but there are also other, I mean, together there are 10 ethnic groups in China believe in Islam. But this is a mosque in China, like you mentioned, uh, probably many people outside of China do know that many mosques in China are in this traditional architecture, Chinese traditional architecture, because they were built hundreds of years ago, uh, sometimes thousands of years ago, and they were part of Chinese culture. So many mosques, are designed in this style. Yeah, it shows that the actually the assimilation of Islam into the Chinese culture, that this is not a foreigner, that this is what the Muslims are yeah. part of our society and it's reflected in the architecture. But everywhere you can see inside these mosques, reflections yeah. of the... Uh, see, this know, is inside the mosque. They are doing the their religious activity. This is the imam, the more... This, this is the Changying Mosque, which is quite close to where I live. Mm-hmm. So the majority of gr- group of people are Hui Muslims. Yeah. Mm. And one fascinating thing that you discover is not that you have one mosque in every city. It's like you have hundreds of mosques in some cities. And you find mosques in Chengdu, uh, at the end of the Tianfu Boulevard, where the... Uh, Chairman Mao's statue is right behind him. There is one of the ancient mosques in Chengdu, mm-hmm. just right there at the uh, Tianfu, I think, called Tianfu Square. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, but when I asked people, I said, "Well, which one of them?" You know, I asked, "Where is the mosque?" In the, uh, and they said, "Well, there are lots of mosques. Which one you want to see?" So <laughs> every Chinese city all over China, you have in every city tens of mosques. You know, it's like, and the density of mosques are sometimes bigger than many Muslim countries. Like in Xinjiang, the density of mosques is actually much, much uh, larger uh, than yeah. usual because it, obviously the Chinese um, authorities have allowed people to start mosques. Uh, that's one of the problems that if you have mosques that are not licensed, then you can you don't know what's going on there. And then you get these uh, extremists uh, going there and uh, spreading mm. false teachings of Islam which are more political than religious. And what- you are an expert on Belt and Road Initiative as well. So I want people to know that the Western politicians, they, target, they targeted on Xinjiang, but they are not just targeting on Xinjiang. They are also targeting China. They are also targeting the whole Eurasia. Because if you look at where Xinjiang located, Xinjiang in the west, northwest of China, border shares the border with eight countries. And those countries are Russia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Mongolia, India, all these countries. So you know where they are targeting. And also mm. Xinjiang, and it's like you mentioned, Xinjiang is a key location for Belt and Road Initiative for connecting the whole Eurasia. Many mm. railways have already been built and are under construction now that will connect China with Central Asia, West Asia. Uh, it was crucial, and also this region is also rich in natural resources, all the minerals, you know, all the oil, gas, 
solar energy, wind energy, everything you know, this region is so rich in natural resources. So it's, it's well, through the history we know, it's not a surprise yeah. that America were targeting some places rich yeah. in natural resources. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, no, I'm very optimistic right now. I mean, I saw the recent uh, Central Asia China summit in Xi'an. Uh, I missed it by a few days. Uh, I visited Xi'an uh, like 10 days later. But this is very, very important. Now, the stabilization of the situation in Afghanistan this is very important that China, Pakistan and Central Asia work together to uh, actually get Afghanistan out of the, its humanitarian crisis, which was created by the West. It was created by the United States and Europe who have been freezing money owned by the Afghani people so they cannot buy food and medicine. But everything is blamed on the Taliban. Now, China is playing an important role in making sure that Afghanistan does not explode, that Afghanistan actually also rich in natural resources and old history uh, can also develop as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. So I'm very, very optimistic that many of the operations for regime change, not like in, there was a regime change operation in, in Uzbekistan. There was recently one in Kazakhstan supported by the West. But all these are being exposed and nations are realizing that their real, you know, uh, natural uh, geoeconomic interest is working with the China, but also with Russia uh, and also with Iran and so on and so forth. So the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the Belt and Road Initiative is creating a completely new dynamic in that region based on economic interest on uh, dialogue among these nations and realizing that all these intelligence games uh, directed against China are also directed against them. And uh, that whole operation is collapsing. And uh, many nations, and now that Saudi Arabia and Iran, with the help of China, have reconciled. So we will have a a landmass from the Pacific in East Asia, China, all the way through the whole of Eurasia, Central Asia, you know, like Russia, all the way to Belarus, but also West Asia, to the Mediterranean, the Gulf, uh, South Asia, Pakistan, hopefully Pakistan and India will bridge their differences. So you will have a landmass, a block of geoeconomic uh, cooperation, which is also based on history, historical, cultural dialogue. This is very, very fascinating for me. I'm very, very optimistic, although the world is very dangerous. But the danger is, does, is not coming from inside those countries, inside those regions. The danger is coming from outside by manipulating the ethnic religious differences uh, to continue the destabilization and weaken Russia, China, and other nations. But now, with the China's intervention mainly, these differences are being resolved and replaced by economic coexistence, uh, win-win cooperation. That's very, very important to uh, keep in mind. Thank you, Hussein. And uh, to those of you who are interested in learning more about Belt and Road Initiative, uh, follow Hussein's Twitter account, his work, and uh, at, uh, well, you tell us where to find your work. Yeah, it's a Belt and Road Institute in Sweden. Uh, this is where we work a lot on the Belt and Road Initiative and all its aspects. We just had a, a webinar, international webinar on the cultural Belt and Road on the Global Civilization Initiative. Uh, but also you can find it on schillerinstitute.org, Schiller Institute. Uh, if you Google that, you will find more. If you Google my name on the screen, you will also uh, get there. Thank you. And uh 
Also, follow my work as well because I recently come exactly. back from Xinjiang. <laughs> <laughs> I recently come back from Xinjiang again. So I made some vlogs and documentaries to show how much change took place in Xinjiang in the past few years. So subscribe to my YouTube channel, and also I wrote articles for CGTN as well. So feel free to follow my content on Xinjiang. And I think I'm planning to travel to different Belt and Road countries this year. So soon I will show you. Different projects was going on probably in Pakistan and in Africa, so stay tuned.、Uh, follow our work and thank you for watching and see you next time.